Genesis 22. You know, some of you might be wondering what's going on here, but we've been in Deuteronomy for so long, we're going backwards, right? (laughs) Are we still in New Testament church? Yes, we are. We're also an Old Testament church. We are an entirely Bible-believing church. And the reason why we're going to Genesis is because Pastor, I asked Pastor Perry what, I, what he wants me to preach on. He said, well, pick something from one of your current seminary classes. Well, I've been studying Old Testament 1 and 2 this semester, so here we are. We're Genesis 22. So, as is our custom, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Genesis 22. We're going to look at verses 1 to 14. Moses writes, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, So they both went of them, so they both, I'm sorry, so they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place, of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by by his thorns, horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Pray with me for a moment. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. We ask that you open our minds and our hearts to your spirit as we study this text. Speak truth to our hearts and light a fire there. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. How many of you ever heard that story? Pretty much everybody, most of you. Most of us are aware of this Bible study, or this Bible story was taught to us as children in Sunday school. We're very familiar with it. And yet, this isn't just 
a children's Bible story. This is an actual historical event. This really happened, and it's part of our church history. Even if it seems... (laughs) very removed from us. And I think that's the difficulty that many of us have in studying the Old Testament. Even though the New Testament was written 2,000 years ago, we're still a little bit more akin to the New Testament than we are the Old Testament. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible about 3,500 years ago. The events of Genesis 22 and Abraham occurred about 4,000 years ago, and that's a long time. We have a hard time relating to the Old Testament culturally and technologically. We call them ancient, and they are ancient. But what I've come to learn is that although they're culturally and technologically very different, people in the Old Testament are really very much the same as you and I. They lived, they thought, they felt the same as we do. Sure, they talked about a lot of different things than we do. They were an agricultural community. They weren't checking their cell phones every five minutes. But what they thought or felt about life is the same as we do. They struggled with the same sinful desires as we do, maybe even to the same degree as we do in our modern time. Take a look at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and everything that was happening in that city, across the entire city. Look at the days of Noah before the flood. What you're going to find is that you're not going to find a lot different in the thoughts and attitudes of the heart than we actually experience in our modern day. Culture and technology changes, but People have always been the same since humans fell into sin. And once you spend more time studying the Old Testament, you'll find that to be true. Well, we're going to experience a little bit of that here this morning as we study Genesis 22. From this text, I want to answer how many questions? (laughs) Three questions. Now, don't get hung up on the number three, because I'm telling you there's about 37 things you need to be writing down this morning. And if you got less than 37, you're missing it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Three questions. Number one, you write these down. What is God testing in Genesis 22? What is God testing in Genesis 22? That's question number one. Question number two. What is God's desired outcome of testing? What is God's desired outcome of testing? And number three is a longer one. How is the desired outcome manifested in people then and now? How is the desired outcome manifested in people then and now? So let's set up Genesis 22. Again, most of us know the story. If you've Heard of Abraham, even if you haven't heard of Abraham, Abraham was a man called by God to be the father of a nation that will eventually become Israel. Genesis chapters 12 to 25 tell the story of Abraham, and we're not going to account, recount all that happened to Abraham other than to say that God made a covenant with Abraham that his descendants would become a nation that number more than the grains of sand on a sandy beach, which are, of course, innumerable. 
Israel would become a nation of priests and serve as a blessing to all the nations. There's only one problem with this story. Abraham and his wife were very old and they had no children. Abraham was almost 100 years old. Sarah was almost 90. Hard to build a nation when you don't have any descendants. There's no sands for the sandy beach. Long story short, God loves to perform miracles. Abraham and Sarah, they pop out a kid at 90. They name him Isaac. You can imagine the joy and the excitement after going childless for decades, and God works a miracle within you to bear a son, although... If you're one of the ladies here, I cannot imagine being going into labor at 90, 90 years old. That must have been a trip. But now, the covenant has something or someone to work with. That first grain of sand has dropped into place in the name of Isaac. Except that brings us to Genesis 22. Notice what it says in verse 1. God says he's going to do something to Abraham. What's he going to do? What's he going to do in verse 1? Testing. Yeah. He's going to test Abraham. So our first question, of course, is what is God testing? We find out in verse 2. God calls out to Abraham. He says, here I am, Lord. Actually, I always thought that was an odd response, as if God didn't know where he was. Here I am. Pastor Tim actually helped me to see that this was actually Abraham's humility. Here I am, Lord. What do you want me to do? And then in verse 2, God says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and, get this, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now imagine Abraham's response to that. I can't even imagine. I, I, I can't even imagine. I can, I can imagine a few of my responses to that, and none of them would have probably been very good, but I can't even imagine. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine receiving this instruction? I read one commentary that said, we have to grapple with the horror of this story. We have to grapple with the horror of this story. Think about it. This is a horrific request. It is unimaginable in human terms that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. I just don't think we can get our minds around that God would command such a thing. It is terrifying. So what is God testing in Abraham? His faith. He's testing Abraham's faith in God. And I see two ways that Abraham's faith is being tested here. First, God is asking Abraham to give back what God gave him. Remember, Abraham and Sarah, they had no children. Abraham did have a child through Sarah's maid, Hagar, and his name was Ishmael. But God's covenant promise was that Abraham would father a great nation through his son named Isaac. 
and through his wife, Sarah, Genesis 17, 19. This was a very specific promise by which Isaac, his only son, and Sarah were specifically named, and then God miraculously gives them Isaac. But now God is asking Abraham to give back that what he'd given. Give back what, give back that what he'd given him. Do you think Abraham might have wondered, is God going back on his promise? What's going on here? That's Abraham's first struggle. Second problem is that God was asking Abraham to give, give back someone he loved. Isaac was his son. Covenant promise or not, there's no doubt that Abraham loved his son. It even says in verse 2, God says, the only, your son whom you loved. Why would God ask me to kill my son? Remember what I began with here. Just because we're culturally and technologically removed from 4,000 years ago, a father still loves his son. You don't get any more basic in human nature than that. And it's no different now than it was 4,000 years ago or 4,000 years from now. God was asking Abraham to give back what he loved, and that would have been a struggle. God was testing Abraham. God tested him by asking him to give back what he'd been given and to give up someone he loved. Do you know who else is being tested in this story? Drop down to to verse verse 9. Drop down to verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac is also being tested here. Now, how would he be? How is Isaac being tested? He's being tested because he must have gone along willingly. Based on a study of the scriptures, most scholars believe that Isaac was. 18 to 20 years old. Fair amount of evidence to support this, but the most obvious is in verses 3 and 6. Verse 3 says that God told Abraham to go to the land of Moriah and offer Isaac at the top of one of the mountains. The other is that verse 6 says that Abraham made Isaac carry the wood up the mountain. Well, first, I assume it takes a lot of wood to burn a human for sacrifice. That's a lot of wood. Second, that's a long way to carry wood up a mountain. Therefore, Isaac was not a little kid like the pictures we saw in Sunday school. He must have at least been in his late teens, as scholars suggest. Other reasons why, but here's the thing. If Isaac is strong enough to carry that much wood up a mountain, then he's clearly strong enough to overcome a 120-year-old man seeking to bind and sacrifice him. Therefore, Isaac is also being tested. But what is God testing? His faith. Isaac obviously knew about the covenant promise to Abraham. He knew that the promise to become a a nation passed through him. Therefore, he must have been asking the same question. Is Is God going back on his promise? So the answer to the first, our first question is, what is God testing in Genesis 22? God is testing the faith of these two chosen men. Here's the question for us. 
What is God testing in us as Christians? When our times of testing come, and they are often, what is God testing in you and me? The answer is our faith. Mine? Yours? And I often imagine God asking me this particular question. Okay, Rick, are you serious about me? Are you serious about me? When I was younger, I would make commitments to the Lord. You may have done similar things like this, such as, Lord, I'm going to start reading my Bible more. I'm going to start reading my Bible daily. So I'd get up early in the morning the first day, start reading a chapter somewhere. Afterwards, I thought, well, that's done. Not sure I got anything out of that on my first day, but I kept my commitment. And then the same thing happens the next day and maybe the next. Same results. But by the time I get to day three, four, five, six, and I'm really not feeling anything different, I started finding reasons to not spend the time. I mean, I I don't feel anything different now than before. And that's when God starts asking me, are you serious about me? Are you going to follow through with your commitment? Are you going to keep reading and keep studying, even if you don't think you're getting anything out of it? Are you serious about me? I said that's what I experienced when I was a younger Christian. If you've had that experience, you'll note that the question only gets bigger as you grow spiritually older. He keeps asking the same question, but the issue gets bigger, maybe even deeper. Rick, I've made it clear that I want you to pick up your family, move 600 miles to another state, to another part of the country. Are you serious about me? Are you serious about following me? Uh, Rick, are you going? (laughs) Are you there yet? Okay, Rick, now I, want you to, now I want you to leave your job. Yeah, the one with the big paycheck and the one that you really, really love. And I want you to go be a pastor and serve me full time. Again, are you serious about me? Every Christian experience this kind of God activity in their life. God is asking you, me, are you serious about me? Here's another way to think about it. God wants to know if you're willing to hold on to him tightly and everything else loosely. And if we answer yes to that question, then what we're committing to as an intense concentration and pursuit of him for life. where we put Jesus in front of and at the expense of everything else in our life. And yes, that even includes our family. And how do I know that? (laughs) Ask Abraham and Isaac. Ask Ask Abraham, was God more important than his family? Ask Jesus in Luke 9, because Jesus answers the same question at the end of the chapter. 
But let's go even higher. It means a willingness to give up all of God's blessings and even the things we think he's promised us. Because we love and treasure him more than his promises and the blessings that we receive. Again, just ask Abraham and Isaac who were looking at a covenant promise being taken away from them, potentially. So the answer to our first question is, what is God testing in Genesis 22? Faith and the depths of faith. Abraham's faith, Isaac's faith, and our faith as we directly apply this text. Second question we're going to look at this morning. What is God's desired outcome from testing? Notice how the story goes. What does Abraham do in verse 3 after God gives him the instruction? Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And it took three days to get there. Three long, excruciating days of travel. Plenty of opportunities to run, hide, yell, scream, and say, no way, God, I ain't doing it, or I'm not doing it. Again, I'm not even going to comment what I would have done because I'd probably be embarrassed by it. Abraham and Isaac leave the other men. They climb the mountain with wood and knife in hand. At some point, Isaac finds out what's going on. We see that in the text. And again, more opportunities to run away, to reject the commandment, but they keep going. They get to the top of the mountain in the land of Moriah. They prepare the altar. Abraham binds Isaac probably so that Isaac doesn't have a change of heart as he, thinks about the, as he thinks about the knife that's about to plunge his chest. Again, Isaac must have allowed Abraham to do this. I imagine they said their goodbyes. Again, I can't even imagine that. In verse 10, Abraham grabs the knife with the intent to kill his son. God's commandment for a sacrifice is about to be complete. And a voice stops him. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Stop. Do not do anything to the boy. Don't kill him. Now let's talk about this angel of the Lord for just a minute. Who is he? Of all the angels described in Scripture, myriads upon myriads of angels, there are only two that are named. Michael, the archangel, and Gabriel, who came to announce the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. Except, I don't believe that this angel of the Lord is either one of them. This angel, I believe, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ before his incarnation, before he became human. And we call this a Christophany, a visible manifestation of the Son of God to people. 
Here's my evidence. Notice, first notice that verse 11 calls this angel the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. The angel, the angel of the Lord is a specific article that makes him distinct from the other angels. Second, look at what he says. Look at what the angel says. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not, with, not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Any old angel would not use the words, now I know and from me. Because it's referring to themselves. Angels are messengers, they are defenders that do the Lord's bidding. They do not refer to themselves as having any authority. Therefore, the only logical conclusion is that this is the pre-incarnate Son of God speaking here. And Jesus says, Abraham, here I am, Lord. Don't harm the boy. So what's the point of all of this? Remember, the instruction was to sacrifice. Why stop it? Why stop the sacrifice? It's because that wasn't the Lord's outcome. It was not the Lord's desired outcome in this story. The Lord's desired outcome wasn't sacrifice, it was obedience. It was obedience to his commands. It was obedience to his word. Obedience is as an affirmation of faith. If we have faith in God as our authority, then we are obedient to his word. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, don't get me wrong, sacrifice is important. In fact, in about 500 years from this very moment on this mountain, God will institute his law on another mountain, on the Mount of Sinai, and he requires a burnt sacrifice as a payment for sin. In fact, that law, his, his Old Testament law, would include different types of sacrifices that would become part of Israel's relationship with him as a payment for sin, for future blessings and caring for his people. But sacrifices weren't enough to demonstrate their commitment to God. If you've ever read the book of Amos, about 1,200 years after this moment, God condemns that nation of Israel for its disobedience to Old Testament law because they did not care for the poor among them and they mistreated their own citizens. But God said, God told them in Amos 5, even though you keep the sacrifices and fervent worship of me, I reject them. The sacrifices meant nothing because there was no obedience to his law. And in the case of Abraham, maybe but in, but in the case of Abraham, God measured his heart. He knew Abraham was going to follow through in sacrificing Isaac in obedience to his command. Abraham's faith, whether he understood what was happening or not, his faith was still in the God who created him, who sustained him, and who promised him. And his faith in God led to his obedience. And by obeying, Abraham proved to God not just to God, to angels, to demons, future generations, that he loved God and he trusted him more than anything or more than anyone else. 
Therefore, God's desired outcome in our testing is obedience. That's the answer to the question number two. It is in God's desired outcome in our testing is obedience as an expression of our faith in him. Now, normally, actually, I'm going to pause and I'm going to ask, what does your level of obedience to God's command say about your level of faith in him? This is an extremely important question for anyone who trusts Christ. Obedience to God proves that our faith is real. James 2.22, if you're a Christian, you need to think about that. But I want to get on to our last question. Third question. How is the desired outcome, which we just said is obedience, how is the desired outcome manifested in people then and now? Well, we've talked about the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. Story of a father who was willing to sacrifice his son in obedience. Now let me tell you another story. This is another story found in the Bible. This is also a true story. It's a historical fact. This really happened, and it's part of our church history. This is the story of another father, only this father had a different purpose than Abraham. This father didn't hold back the sacrifice of his son. Instead, he sacrificed his son. He sacrificed his only begotten son, not on an altar. He sacrificed his son on a wooden cross. After being tried for crimes he did not commit, after being beaten and whipped, the son was strapped to a wooden cross. Nails were driven through the son's hands and feet. His bones were broken as the nails passed through flesh into the wood. The cross was stood up, dropped into a hole where the son's body hung between heaven and earth. And after a few agonizing hours, this, this son, his son, gave the ultimate sacrifice. His son died alone on that cross. The name of the heavenly father's son was Jesus. Now let me tell you the connection between these two stories. This is pretty amazing. Follow with me here. This is pretty amazing. Go back to verse 2 of our text in Genesis 22. I mentioned this earlier. God told Abraham to take Isaac to the land of Moriah, to a specific mountain that God will direct him to. Specific mountain. This land of Moriah, we, we know, is three days' travel to the north of what is now southern Israel. Obviously, a mountainous region. Now let's advance in Scripture a thousand years from Genesis 22. First Corinthians, or, I'm sorry, First Chronicles 3.1. Then King Solomon, the king of Israel, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem 
on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place where David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Bible says that Solomon built the temple of God in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem is called the city of God. It was actually built about a thousand years after Genesis 22. The city was built in the ancient land of Moriah. And Solomon builds the temple of God on Mount Moriah in that city. Coincidence? I don't think so. Many scholars believe that where Solomon built the temple of God is the same mountain that Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed. And we shouldn't put it past our God to do something like that. Even separated by a couple thousand years or hundreds of years. But even more, watch this. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587-586 B.C. It was rebuilt over a period of time, but finished by Herod only a few decades before Jesus comes on the scene. In the same, they, they rebuilt the temple, the second temple, in the same place as Solomon's temple on Mount Moriah. And in this temple is where Jesus stood in John chapter 8. And he's embroiled in this conflict, this debate, debate with Jewish leaders, and they accuse him of blasphemy, and, and listen, listen to this, John chapter 8, verses 56 to 57, how Jesus invokes the name of Abraham into this story. They're in the temple, and, and they're having this debate, and, and Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus is standing in the temple of God, okay? In the Old Testament, the temple was built so that the presence of God would fill the temple and live among his people. Except because of Israel's disobedience, God's presence had left the temple in Ezekiel 10. And for 600 years, the temple remained empty of God's glory and presence. And now Jesus is in the temple he invokes the name of Abraham in the place where Abraham intended to sacrifice Isaac. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. To the Jews, this was a declaration by Jesus that he is God. They considered it blasphemy. Here's the truth. Here's the reality. The reality is that Jesus spoke the truth. He is the Son of God. He is Lord over all. And what the Jews missed in that very moment was that for the first time in 600 years, the presence and glory of God had returned to the temple in the form of Jesus. What a story. What a story. How can only God can write stories that span thousands of years, that play out in thousands of years? And then, only a short time later, Jesus would return to that same, same temple 
under arrest where he would be tried and sentenced to death for crimes that he did not commit. The father sacrificing his son for the sins of the world in the same place as Abraham intended to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Jesus, just like Isaac, was a willing participant in his own death. He had the power to stop it, but he chose to obey his father as Isaac did. Jesus said about his life in John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes it from me, but I lay down, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Paul wrote about Jesus, Philippians 2, 6 to 8, who, though he was in the form of God, did not equate did not count equality with God to be a thing, grasp, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like Isaac, Jesus was obedient to his father and he willingly put himself on that cross. What it all means is that the historical account of Abraham and Isaac is more than just a children's Bible story. It's a prophetic picture of Christ 2,000 years before. And we see this all coming together in the last two verses of our text this morning. Look at at Genesis 22.13. Remember that the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus, inserts himself between Abraham and Isaac. He told Abraham not to harm the boy. And watch what happens. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Get these words, instead of his son. Notice that God still required a sacrifice from Abraham. Remember that God is looking for the obedience of faith. And even though Isaac was spared, a burnt offering was still required. And here God provides a substitute, a ram to be slain and burnt as a, offered as a burnt sacrifice. And then there is this amazing statement in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham called that place, the mountain that they were standing on, the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That can be interpreted as future tense. What? What shall be provided? A substitute. A substitute for sacrifice. The sacrifice for sin, for the sins of the world. On that mountain where the city of God was built, where the temple of God was built, where Jesus stood and was falsely accused and tried and sentenced to death as a sacrifice, everything that happened to Abraham and Isaac pointed to what God the Father and his Son would do 2,000 years later. And Jesus said that in John 8, that Abraham saw this prophetic picture. That is amazing to me. 
absolutely amazing. As, as we close, I want to fast forward 2,000 years from Jesus' time right up to today. Maybe you're here and you're asking the question, what does any of this have to do with us? What does it have to do with me? It has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with us. You see, Abraham and Isaac were sinners just like we are. They were descendants of Adam, just as we are descendants of Adam, and we all share the same problem of sin that fills our members. And that sin separates us from God, the one who created and sustains every one of us. In our sin, we are separated from him and from a future with him, but God made a way for us to restore a right relationship with him by providing a substitute sacrifice to pay for our sin. And that substitute sacrifice was his own son, Jesus. But why? Why would God do such a thing? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you've never heard this, or even if you have, here's the truth. Even in your sin, God loves you so very much. He loves you so much that he provided a perfect sacrifice to pay for your sin. We don't have to live in our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. We don't have to face the the punishment of hell. There is another way. There is another path to travel, and it is offered freely to all, to all who would believe. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I said earlier that obedience is an expression of our faith in Christ. Abraham obeyed God and it was credited, credited to him. But do you know what the first act of obedience is for every saved person? It's to have faith in Jesus. It's to believe God. It's to believe him. God's call for salvation reaches to everyone. And our first act of obedience is to believe him and believe in him. Jesus is the door that enters into a new life and salvation. And as you sit there this morning, maybe God is poking at you calling you to trust him, believe in Jesus. If he is, would you let us help you come to faith, to trust in this God? Come see me afterwards. Stop by the crossroads as you walk out on your right. There's a meet with one of our pastors. Call us this week. We'll come to wherever you are. We'll meet with you. Don't pass this up. Don't pass God up. He loves you, and so do we. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you for your word. Lord, you've done so many amazing things in all of these historical accounts that literally spans centuries, even thousands of years. Only you can do that. Only you can establish the story of Abraham and Isaac and this requirement of a substitutionary sacrifice and finish the story in Jesus 2,000 years later. Let those who doubt you be encouraged and look to you in faith. I pray, Lord, if there is someone here who does not believe, that they would come and seek the one who, who can satisfy their emptiness and find salvation from their sins. Lord, we don't have to live in our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. You've made a way of salvation through Jesus. Give us the courage to walk the path that leads to you in Jesus' name. Amen.